Hi everyone and welcome to this podcast on intellectual disabilities and diabetes. My name's Jan and I'll be your host today. I'd first of all like to introduce you to our two guests. Firstly, Angela Blair, who I've known for a million years, as who has been a credentialed diabetes educator for more than 40 years. Her passion has been supporting people with diabetes. She's been responsible for the development, delivery and review of many programs for children, adolescents and adults living with type, all types of diabetes. This has included training for health professionals, both face-to-face and in the e-learning format. Her professional qualifications are a New South Wales registered nurse midwife with a Bachelor of Nursing from the University of Newcastle and a Master's in Applied Management in Health through the University of Newcastle and a Certificate for in Learning and Management and, and Assessment, I'm sorry. Sharna Critchett is a credentialed diabetes educator and a registered nurse and midwife. She is also the course coordinator for the postgraduate diabetes courses at Curtin University. And she also works in private practice running a diabetic clinic in a small town in the south of Western Australia. Shana's passion for diabetes care is empowering clients through person-centred care and evidence-based information to live well with diabetes. She's also a guardian and carer of her adult brother with Down syndrome, so has first-hand experience of both sides of healthcare for people living with intellectual disabilities. Our learning objectives for today are firstly to be able to describe the impact of living with a disability and diabetes in the person and their family and carers. Secondly, to demonstrate how a diabetes educator may use personal-centred care to better educate and support people with an intellectual disability and diabetes. And finally, to identify what resources, tools and aids there are to support people with intellectual disability in managing their diabetes. So hello to both Angela and Shana. How are we today? Good, thank you, Jan. Great. Hello, I'm good, thank you. Thank you and welcome and thank you for your time today. Angela, I might start with you. Um, As I mentioned, today we'll be discussing uh, intellectual disabilities and diabetes. I'm just wondering what some of the intellectual disabilities are that you commonly find when when you're providing diabetes education to these people. Um, Well, Jan, I like to think of everybody as um, just people. Um, And I guess to some degree we all have some um learning disabilities but I guess the important thing to remember is that no one's able to have an in-depth understanding of each and every type of intellectual disability because you can be born with them you can um and develop them over your lifespan so um each circumstance and situation is is really specific to that individual person so as I said anyone can present with an intellectual disability you know and, and I include in that people that have had a stroke or they may have lost their vision, um, they may have um, dementia or Alzheimer's. The list is kind of endless, really. Um, or they may have been born with, say, Down syndrome as um, Shana's brother was. So it, it can come in any shape or size, I guess. So we should consider them as people. We should consider their lifestyle, who supports them, whether it's their family or carers. And what else is going in there? going on in their life. Um, so some examples, some of the more common ones are the ones I've mentioned, but I guess 
The first step is knowing what's a diagnosed intellectual disability versus an undiagnosed one. And, you know, often people present and you may not immediately know if they've got an intellectual disability unless they actually tell you. It can be recently diagnosed, as happened to me last Thursday at clinic, a lady came in and it was only that her husband mentioned it once they sat down um, that, that I was then able to work with her a little bit differently. So we shouldn't make any assumptions about people, um, about how they engage with us, um, and we should try and be aware of their cognitive understanding of their um, condition and the requirements for the management of their life, their health and their diabetes, I guess. Thanks for that, Angela. Shana, did you have uh, anything that you'd like to add to that? Yeah, I think um, I just wanted to highlight uh, really around things like communication issues. Angela, you mentioned about things that might go along with with intellectual disability, like something like vision impairments um, or physical disability that can go hand in hand, which makes it a little bit more, maybe more obvious, but it, it adds another layer of things you have to get your head around. Um, but it also means that if they don't have something physically obvious that, as Angela said, you might just not uh, realise. Um, and so being able to work out communication issues can be really important as in how how much are they understanding of you and how much are you under, actually understanding of them. So thinking about you're never really as a carer going to know enough about, sorry, as a healthcare professional, you're never really going to know enough about the disability necessarily to kind of inform your treatment decisions optimally because there's so everyone is different even if they had the same diagnosis and so I guess the point is you don't have to know everything but you have to know enough about what you don't know to be able to work with the person their carers and it does come back to what Angela said about no assumptions about um, what they can or can't do or their level of engagement and I think um, just being mindful that often someone with an intellectual disability will come with a carer usually or a family member or support support worker and that and that adds another layer and they may the carer may have limited experience or knowledge on diabetes or, or even on the, the person themselves and so that can make it difficult and some confusion or difficulties around the legalities I guess as well so so being mindful of just a small as a healthcare worker we should be mindful of who is making decisions for this person how are we making sure that we keep our care centered on them when there's other um, other legalities in the way, I guess. Great. Thank you so much for that. Angela, I'd like to address the next question to you. I'm just wondering what challenges do you think people with an intellectual difficulty face every day when they're managing their diabetes? And what are the, some of the things that keep in mind when we're working with people um, with, uh, with intellectual disabilities? I guess for me, um, one of the things I learned as a young educator was that it's always to talk to the person rather than, you know, it's so easy for us sometimes to, um, the care is the one that's often open and telling you what's going on. And it's easy to then exclude the person from the conversation. So I'm very mindful of that. I like to actually focus on the person who has the appointment with me or is attending whatever service I'm providing and I like to make sure that I, you know, look them in the eye and talk to them, even if it is the carer or family member that's answering the questions. And I, I think that's a great place to start. 
Um, you know, we, we often talk about person-centred care, but we, you know, unless we make that person the centre of the care we're providing, we're really not doing that. So, um, and one of the challenges I often find is, is what um, Shiana said was about carers. Um, in my, um, you know, experience, it's the carer that turns up may not be the carer that's actually looking after that person. They might be just the person that's rostered on that day or the person that transports these people to their appointments. So the assumption can, can be made, are they going to answer some of these questions? But they might not know anything about that person. And I think that's really important to, to really make sure that you know who that person accompanying, accompanying them is and what their role is in their care. But generally, the carer or the family who attends will know the person and have insight into their lived experience, I like to call it. So they'll know about them as a person. And we always should know who we're, who we're talking to as a person first and foremost before we start really looking into diabetes because that often guides how we can incorporate diabetes education and management into their life. I like to get as much information as I can um, on the person um, with an intellectual disability, including what it is. And if you can get it beforehand, that's even better. And it sort, certainly gives you that skill set to assess their level of understanding, knowledge and, man, you know, management ability. I had a conversation just yesterday with um, a service about a person in their care who the occupational therapist, GP and pharmacist all say this person can actually participate in their own self-care, but the nurse that's been coming in says no. So it's trying to navigate all those kind of um, conversations about just what um, level of understanding that person has and what they're able to do as far as their diabetes is concerned. I like to think we should speak clearly and slowly, though not loudly, and you'd be surprised how fast sometimes we all speak when we get on a topic we're passionate about. And I always try and smile. I was told many years ago that if you're talking to people and you smile, your voice sounds kinder and more empathetic. So, And it even works wearing a mask, which is um, relevant to now. Um, I like to use language that's unambiguous. And, and, you know, I hate to use the word simple, but, you know, sometimes don't, don't make, you know, the story complicated. Tell it as it is. And wherever, use language that they're familiar with. You know, one of the biggest issues around language at the moment is people often will say blood sugar and if we say no no that's glucose they're not quite as familiar with what that means so it's using their language in preference to what we think is sometimes the correct way of saying it analogies can be helpful for some people but can be actually actually um a little bit distracting and confusing for others so be mindful when you're telling that story that it's a story that those people um, will find relevant to their life experience and actually understand. You often, you know, hear people when they're talking about locks and keys um, as far as insulin and, and people are looking at you like, what are you talking about? You know, I don't have any locks and keys inside my body. Break down instructions step by step. This is my absolute favourite. Um, if you break it down, you know, even having you know, giving giving themselves insulin, for example, or checking their blood glucose level, if you break it down with step-by-step -step instructions and try and involve the person in those steps, there may be one thing that they can do, there may be five things out of the steps that they can do, but it does keep them involved and engaged. And I also like to use pictures, um, videos. I've been known to actually use a person's smartphone to video them doing something so they can take it home and use it as a reference. 
So I think that's anything that you can do to engage the person and um, and those, and it's not just them, it's the people that attend with them because for them it's new information as well. Thanks, Angela. That's a great um, practical advice. Shana, I wonder, do you have any tips on how CDEs could approach intellectual disabilities in a consultation, please? Yeah, I um, I find that I always try and acknowledge um, that living with intellectual disability is a challenge in its own and so can living with diabetes be. Um, and so wherever possible, I like to ask the person themselves about how they would manage or they are managing, um, what what they actually do for themselves, who helps them out with their management if somebody does and what does that person do, um, how do they like to be spoken to, how do they like to learn and things like that. I think consciously trying to accommodate this can be really help give you insight into the person and, and you may be surprised by what the person's actually able to describe about their own experience. So even if they're not particularly descriptive or articulate, you can sometimes get valuable insight about their previous experiences or impressions that they have of previous appointments or health professionals, particularly as this might add to barriers that they have when you're trying to engage them. I think a person-centred care approach just can't be overstated, just treating the person with dignity, compassion, respect, but also being able to provide personalised, coordinated care, support the person to recognise and develop their strengths and abilities because I think so often in diabetes, just in life as, as health professionals, we focus on the things that we'd really like to improve. But I think a really great starting point is to work out what are the strengths of this person, what are their networks, who have they got around them, and how can we help them build on that so they can live as independently as possible. As Angela said, I personally, in my experience, I have found that people tend to be quite used to being spoken about or spoken over, and this often can result in a bit of withdrawal. And I guess if you're not even looking for it, you might not even notice that they they could be more engaged if you were speaking to them. So I guess really just try and invest in a rapport with that person, just having realistic expectations as well. No assumptions. Don't don't assume that they can or can't understand anything. And and wherever possible. As much planning for the appointment as you can, as in do you know who's coming? There might be family, it might be carers, um, finding out how the person um, communicates and what you can know about that person before they get there can be really helpful, particularly if, you know, you might need to get some resources, sign language, pictures, videos, that sort of thing can be really helpful for people. And, for example, even just the terminology, as you said, Angela, the terminology that someone is familiar with, if we can continue on with that sort of thing is really helpful. Um, my brother's familiar with the term blood sugar um, and we talk about different amounts of energy in carbohydrates, that, that uh, sorry, in foods that we use our foods for energy and and that kind of affects his, his blood sugar and, um, you know, he knows that. If he eats more energy than he uses, then, you know, his tummy starts to store it a bit like a battery. That's kind of the analogy that we use. But that's going to make no sense to someone who hasn't been involved in kind of developing that with him, I guess. One other thing I would, would say is the length of the appointment. I mean, just set aside some time. It's going to take some time to get to know that person and the communication necessarily takes longer with someone with intellectual disability, but particularly if you've got more than, you know, if you've got other people there with you, you'll need to allow some time for that. So, I think those are some practical kind of things you could think about. 
Thank you for that, Shana. That was great. Um, you, you both mentioned carers and family members, and I, I imagine they must play a fairly crucial role in, in caring for someone with an intellectual disability. And I imagine that over time this can affect them emotionally, mentally, and even physically. And I'm just wondering if there are any resources or ways to support family members and carers in this situation. Angela, what what are your thoughts on that? It's a challenging area, all of this, because we tend to, as diabetes educators, I guess we our first and foremost thoughts are around diabetes. And I think, you know, one of the um, one of the first steps is really about considering what the person can and can't do. As as Shana said, it's really about maintaining whatever skills they and independence they have with their diabetes. But if they're new to diabetes, it's finding out what are, what else they can do. Are they making food choices themselves or are they dependent on other people and things like that? A lot of the information that's out there um, for people with diabetes now is, is much more um, person-centred in the approach. It's around, you know, people are getting videos and, you know, in the online space that they can sit and watch over and over again so they can really get that skill on board. But I guess... The, you know, as far as resources, the ADA, of course, have um, just released their learning package for health professionals and there's resources in there for the person themselves as well. But I guess what you need to, um, people are in all sorts of environments and locations and I think the first step is looking at who's looking after these people and making sure they have access to services. Um, we could, in, you know, advise someone that you know, they have to see an endocrinologist, but if there's not an endocrinologist in their area, that may be quite difficult. So it's really knowing who's around in the area that they can actually use as to um, support that person, what the access is and what the cost is to do that and how that fits into their, you know, their ongoing care. As, as Shana said, we like to acknowledge that this is all a challenge and, and for the family and carers, they may be equipped to manage the intellectual disability. They may have set themselves up and be quite um, organised and feel that they ha they're on top of it, for want of a better word, and suddenly this person's diagnosed with diabetes and they it's literally a huge impact on those daily plans because suddenly there's all these extra visits, there's finding out all this new information, they need training, they need equipment, they need diabetes education, there's extra visits to doctors, dietitians, diabetes educators, etc. And so that could be putting that whole family um, or carer support structure back to square one, which is, you know, they come to us and it's it, they're quite challenged by all that. Um, so I guess... My advice to anyone would be to look at what, whoever they're seeing's situation from everyone's perspective, you know, mm. and don't make any, you know, straight up judgments about it. What is realistic? What can they manage? And what's the best way to clearly communicate to everyone so everyone feels that they know what's going on? No different to what happens in schools. It's, it's any care situation. The, the first, the first and most important part is to have a very clear communication strategy so everyone knows what's happening because otherwise it all falls apart, unfortunately. And I can course, only... Yeah, it, it, it can be crazy. And then yeah. look at the strategies and tools. You know, there's some really good um, tools and strategies. that They're not just supporting the person um, that has diabetes, but it's also for their family and carers regardless of who they are. You know, um, the NDSS has some great 
um, um, learning programs now. There's one on carb counting, for example. So it may not be necessarily the person themselves that learns about carb counting. It could be the family or carers that can do that course and then have a better understanding and then can help that person with their choices based on their, their learning. Um, so I think that's all really important that we consider, you know, who gets who's who gets the education and how they get it? Um, medications another big big key part of this. Um, I work for Diabetes New South Wales and ACT, and we get phone calls every day on our on the, the NDSS helpline asking for um, training for carers, um, healthcare workers to be able to support that person with their medications. And I think this is an area that you know um, we're certainly working in. But it's also giving people the perspective of this is, you know, and it's that that kind of more consistent communication. At the moment, it's fairly inconsistent in how that's all managed. And I think, you know, our organisation, ADEA, is working towards bringing all that together. And I think part of that is this webinar today. And I think that's really important. Great. Thanks, Angela. And I'll maybe just carry that theme on a little bit, Shana. Um, are there any subsidies or other schemes, you, um, NDIS has been mentioned, uh, but are there other funding sources to flag for, for clients or their carers in this position? And are there any other multidisciplinary team members who are important to have on board with, with people within these disabilities? Yeah, I think that's a great question and something that a lot of diabetes educators want to know about? And the, the short answer is not specifically that I'm aware of. Um, obviously, NDIS funding, so the National um, Disability Insurance Scheme funding and people with intellectual disabilities should all have access to this, is designed to support that person to live as normal a life as possible. So, but if you I know that some people have been able to successfully gain additional diabetes support uh, through the NDIS, but I guess the the focus needs to be that the support that you're asking for is not what they're already eligible for, say on a, a, a GP management plan with team care arrangements. So, of course, that they're entitled to that as part of the, and their annual diabetes cycle of care, um, which everyone with diabetes is entitled to. Um, but if you need things beyond that, then um, applying to the NDIS might be an option, but you just need to highlight how what you're asking for isn't available in somewhere else. So the GP management plan couldn't facilitate what you're asking for and also that it is specifically needed because of their disability. So it might be that, um, for example, somebody who isn't able to maybe do their own um, blood glucose finger pricks uh, but is at risk of hypos may be able to access um, flash or CGM from a safety perspective, that sort of thing, so somebody else could could track them and things like that. But it, it's not clear cut, and there's certainly nothing definitively set out. But if you have an intellectual disability and diabetes, this is a program that you're entitled to. Unfortunately, I'm just going to say nothing's ever easy when you start to working with government departments either. I suppose no, it's not, and I, mm. I think it's such a shame because it's just another step or barrier or something that the family and the carers, somebody has to negotiate just to get 
the care that everyone is entitled to, and I think that's a shame, but that's it. <laughs> anyway, but in terms of other multidisciplinary team members, I think um, in terms of you would have the normal multidis team members that you would need for diabetes uh, management and just case by case for that person, I guess. But if somebody, and this comes back to I think, Angela, you mentioned, and if not, um, we we had kind of noted this was that are there other who's already in the person's healthcare team and can we make contact with them to kind of provide some continuity and get to know as much about them as possible and trying to really engage if there is already a healthcare team um can can we engage with them and communicate with them and if that person happens to have an ot to deal with sensory issues um or independent living then yeah it's not the usual um port of call for a diabetes educator but but, you know, I think wherever we can build bridges to help that person, then, then yeah, I would reach out to somebody who's already on their team that might be helping them deal with things like that. Great. Thanks for that, Shana. That makes perfect sense to me. Angela, I'm wondering what some of the things are that we as Derby's educators should be thinking of and, and be aware of when supporting someone with intellectual dis- disabilities. It's 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 really good and the list can be potentially as long as, you know, as long as or it can be as short as, I guess. Um, we're all going to come, as educators, we're all going to come across people that need a little more or a little less depending on where they sit in life. So um, one of the things I like to um, think about is just that extra help might need to go along with um, a slightly longer appointment time as um, Shana mentioned before, but this may often depend on that person getting to you. Um, tra- you know, um, people with intellectual disabilities often rely on transport and, you know, it's trying to work that appointment into whatever else is going on in their life um, because you don't want the diabetes appointment to take, you know, last last place because it's quite um, difficult to get an appointment. The longer appointment's really good because, you know, this is a situation where you don't want to rush them. It needs to be broken down in bite-sized education, whether it's, you know, for the person themselves or the person, their family or carers, um, if possible. And also consider that uh, most people with a disability will will be pensioners. And so, you know, if you're, they may not, though, be able to afford that longer consultation if there's a you know, a um, co-payment fee that goes along with it. So it's about having that com- conversation about expectations versus reality. You know, this would be a great idea, but if I can't afford it or I don't have enough, um, you know, um, team care arrangement visits to do it, then it may not be possible. Be prepared. I like to be prepared, but sometimes you can't be. But if you can be prepared, it's often, you know, a big um big thing in their life to get to that appointment. So if you can, um, if you're going to prolong that appointment by asking questions that you could have found out beforehand, if you know, if you've got that opportunity, it's a good idea, read their history so you're not asking the same questions over and over again. You know, find out a little bit more about their intellectual disability if you know in advance or even after you've met them. It's respect, but to find out a little bit more if they can't tell you, you know, there's always other ways to find that information out. Um, and, you know, it, it can help build that rapport that's so important. Even if the person may not be, um, you know, maybe nonverbal even, you can still give cues with facial expressions, but it also then helps for the um, carers and the family members who, who may be with you. This is always a hard one for me, I'm going to tell you now, but ensure the environment is as calming as possible. 
I'm the entertaining educator, but, you know, in those situations, sometimes it's take it down a level and, and go slower and be calmer with, to, to give them that opportunity to, to, to take on board um, the conversation that you're having with them and to help them come up with how they, you know, what their key object, um, goals are in managing their diabetes um, to start with. So things like sit, sit facing them, smile, good body language, have a little small talk, you know, make a sweet joke. I, I have a joke at the moment about face masks that you'll never know what I really look like because I'm behind a mask. So it just puts them at ease and, and just makes them feel part of that, that visit. It may not always work, but it certainly can help. And, you know, often it's finding out um, something that they may be interested in. Um, I know um, Shana's brother loves um, Doctor Who and Harry Potter. So sometimes, you know, you know, um, jokes around, you know, <laughs> Harry Potter can, can kind of be an icebreaker and they go, oh, she's so nice or he's so nice and then, you know, it's much easier then to move forward. But, again, remember that this is just one of their many commitments for, for that whole group that's coming in to see you. And so, you know, some reminders are always um a good of good value and you know one of the things that I'm obsessed with is this um, providing non-judgmental support because you know who who are we to know who walks in anyone's shoes and so we're there to support them as much as possible and I'm pro probably preaching to the converted I know that but it's always good to say it again the other thing I'd like to say though is if they do for, if they don't make an appointment it may seem careless, it may seem that oh, they don't value it, but it may also be because it's such a big juggling act to get them there. Um, if their um, transport lets them down, if the nurse that was or that the um, healthcare worker that was going to bring them is sick that day and they can't schedule another one in, that, that you know, and who actually remembers to ring up and then let you know that? So that whole three strikes and you're out of the system may not always be a good fit. Um, for a person with an intellectual disability and diabetes. And it's certainly good to have a little bit of flexibility and maybe if they don't turn up, just find out why before. It's just that they don't, they couldn't be bothered coming. It's, it's probably how I would approach it. Great. Thanks for that, Angela. Shana, we've, we've talked obviously a bit about family members and carers as we've gone along today. And obviously, a huge part of the care team for somebody living with, with a disability, as we've talked about already but I'm wondering would you say it's true that there's often a lot more time needing to be spent on education regarding management with these people as well as as the client with diabetes and disability? Yeah I definitely think that is the case and I think um, just as Angela said uh, some some compassion and attempt to understand kind of the situation that this person is living in and, and the situation of the family and carers can go a long way um, in creating a good rapport and building a relationship with that client because everyone's situation will be really quite unique. And if it is, there's lots of considerations, I guess, around who who's organising the care. The people that are coming to the appointments, as we said, might not be the people that are organising their care. So, it might be a family member who kind of logistically organises a team of carers and and so who you get on a given day certainly may be involved to a greater or lesser extent in in 
their diabetes management or even in their day-to-day management. So even if you're providing basic information from our point of view, like healthy eating, um, practical tips on choose this, you know, you, you quite often like to drink Coke. Can we swap that out uh, maybe to Coke Zero? And, and that might make a, a great improvement in certain areas if that's what we can achieve with that person. But if we tell a carer who's literally driving them to and from and that doesn't get communicated to the person who arranges their meals or takes them on their social outings, then I guess that's going to be of limited value. So I guess just being aware of, of that situation the person's situation, I think is really important. But I think also to be aware that it's not just family or carers, but like Angela said, it might be respite care, day care, residential care, um, supported employment, wherever that person is. As we know, diabetes doesn't take a break. So wherever that person is, there's going to have to be some effort made to plan and, and put some communication and education in place for, you know, for wherever they're going to be. And, and that can be really challenging. I think as, as well, it really, the education that these people and their, their carers and family members can receive often depends on referrals and accessibility and, and who can get to any given appointment on any given day. And so even if the family or carers are really engaged, it, it's not necessarily feasible that they can be at each appointment or you can get everyone together at the appointment to be providing the same education to each other. So that can make it really difficult, I think. It can be another barrier. And there certainly there is training for support workers um, and that, that might be a priority for residential or respite care, but it often varies on the individual facility as to who will be doing what in terms of diabetes management um, and care to the, the person. And so actually a lot of the time you'll find that the family are the people organising everything, um, mm. really being a case manager. And that I, I sort of something that I jotted down as Angela was talking is that just, just to be aware that for this person, for this family, but even for this person, diabetes may not be and dare I say, is unlikely to actually be their main focus of their mm. care and life. Often these people have so much going on that, you know, this, and it can be really disheartening, like another thing to add to the list and something that Im- impacts <laughs> every aspect of your life. Um, and for us, it can be really frustrating, I guess, or or worrying or upsetting that you can see that the the progress or the changes we would like are not necessarily happening, um, but it's not necessarily for a lack of wanting to do so. But, you know, there's so many competing priorities and, and issues and logistics, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I, can, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I guess maybe, Angela, I, I wondered if you had a, a brief case study perhaps highlighting how you've supported a person and their family and carers with their management because obviously all these issues will have an impact on on how that happens. It does, Jan. Uh, look, I do have one that I'd like to share and that's um, a case that took nearly two years to resolve and that sounds such a long time but we had, you know, it, it came with its own challenges. Um, we were contacted by a father um, who needed some help to navigate the systems, I'll call them the systems, and that was the NDIS and the local diabetes services, as he um, he was planning some elective surgery. It was knee knee replacement. And he he and his wife were sole carers for their son 
um, Nate, who was 19 at the time um, and lived with both type 1 diabetes and cerebral palsy. So Nate was nonverbal, used a wheelchair for, for mobility, but lived at home with his parents quite comfortably. But they needed some respite care because they weren't going to be able to manage um, you know, the, the period of time that the surgery required. Um, so Nate, Nate is a very charming young man who loves anime and movies and going outdoors. He responds to questions with a nod or a shake, but, you know, certainly doesn't participate much um, with the actual skills of living with diabetes. So he doesn't check his own blood glucose level or um, he's on an insulin pump. He doesn't, you know, um, insert his own sets or anything like that. His parents do all that for him. And he, you know, they use um, a meter and flash monitoring to monitor. So there was the pump, the flash monitoring, the meter to take into consideration, but also the general day-to-day -day care, looking for hypos and things like that. Nate's dad said that um, he was, you know, very symptomatic when his blood glucose levels were um, outside his target range, which, but his father reassured me that rarely happened. And his family were very supportive and engaged in his care and, and just was a lovely family. So what we what I set up was a um, a coordinated planning meeting between all the relevant parties um, to see what we could work out. So that was with Nate's caseworker and the parents, his GP because um, he wasn't seeing an endocrinologist at the time, um, and so we could get come up with just what needed to go in the diabetes management plan so that we could find a service that would take Nate on for his respite care. So we had the staff trained up with some online training and, and in person for some problem-solving solutions um, when we found a service. Um, we developed, as I said, a management plan um, in consultation and the um, service that we ended up going with actually um, was able to hire a nurse, an RN, through his NDIS funding um, to be on call to replace his pump set if it fell out during those three, the three days of his respite stay. And, you know, did it work? It was a lot of work. As you know, it took me two years to get it to the <laughs> point where he actually had his respite because we did all this with one organisation who at the end pulled out. So we literally oh, no. had to then start again. We had all the staff trained up. We did everything we needed to do. And then they said, oh, this is actually more of a challenge than we think it is. But the second group took him, took it on board and were very, very um, supportive, extremely supportive. And I, I'm happy to say he's actually had two respite visits now since um, before, of course, we went into to lockdown in Sydney. But it's a good example that it, it really comes down to the communication side, realistic expectations, because if you set people up to think, oh, this is going to be, in inverted commas, easy, and it's not, then uh, all you need to do is this, this and this, and it's not, then it can be quite more challenging than, than they're aware of. And certainly the first organisation felt there was a lot more to it than what they originally thought when they were, the father approached them before I did. And so the father kind of made it sound a little bit more simplified than what it actually was. Fair enough. Thank you for that. That was a great example. Um, Shana, I just wonder... What kind of resources or upskilling learning opportunities are available to us as health professionals and support workers for managing these people with intellectual disabilities? 
Yeah, I think um, the recent AGEA um, project that was completed and they released re- training resources um, and they're available on uh, online and I think those are really helpful. Um, but, of course, with everything, you know, you need to then take them and adapt them to the people that you come across. I know Jane Lehman's done some great work in the area and has resources available, um, but certainly I would also consider getting in touch with anyone who's been working in the area or, who, or experienced CDEs who, who might have had um, experiences in this area might also be a great resource. I think there's there's no replacement for mentorship, things like that. Angela, did you just want to mention, because there's a couple of programs I know that you've been yeah. more involved in than I have. Um, I also work for Diabetes Qualified, which is a social enterprise um, subsidiary of Diabetes New South Wales and ACT. Sounds complicated, doesn't it? But um, we provide health professional and healthcare worker um, education programs. And one of the, we're also a registered training organization. So we've actually got a two hour program for um, health workers called Practical Diabetes for Support Workers. It covers everything but medication administration because that that comes with rules and and regulations Mm -hmm. so what we've actually done is as as a um, registered training organization is we're actually about to start delivering administering medication it's a skill set so healthcare workers with a certificate for and it actually enables them to be able to administer medications as a competency-based training Um, it is you know, the, I think the way to go forward for um, staff because they've got that confidence that they've actually they've got that skill set. They get a certificate of attainment, and it's it's very much a competency based standards program. So this is something we feel quite passionate about in supporting people living with diabetes who have an intellectual disability that are dependent on care. One of the things we know is happening out there is it's it's a it's a Chinese whispers kind of education training program in some of these organisations where, you know, person one, someone says, oh, this is how you get insulin, and then person two, you know, they leave and they show person two, person three, and before you know it, there's this really unusual way of that, that insulin, for example, being administered. But we know there's so much more to medications than just insulin with diabetes. Mm. So... This course actually covers all medications. So that's the, the glory of the staff, these, the healthcare worker with the CERT for having that um, qualification means that they can actually administer insulin within the policies and procedures of the organisation that they work for. So if anyone's interested in knowing a bit more of that, just um, visit diabetesqualified.com.au and it's all on our um, website. You can also subscribe to our newsletter if you're keen when you um, visit it and then you'll actually know what we're up to. So we've got lots of other things on there like webinars and things like that as well. Thank you for that, Angela. Uh, Just before we finish up today, um, I'll ask each of you what would be your main take-home messages for our CDEs on optimising how we can support those living with a disability and diabetes. And, Shana, I might start with you first if you could. Yeah, I think just to prepare yourself as much as you can and just just be open. It can feel a bit intimidating or a bit scary, but you're never going to know everything about any particular condition or person and whether that's intellectual disability or any other medical condition or situation. So a person-centred approach is really is the way to go and just give them time to get to know you and see that you want to get to know them, build that rapport, that will really 
pay off. Be realistic and kind to them, the family and the carers. And I guess one thing that I just noted as we were going, please also remember that often these people have had a lot of involvement in healthcare previously and um, it's good if we can just bear that in mind and, and if there's any kind of negative or even traumatic experiences that they may have had that might might be an issue in us trying to build rapport and engagement with them, I think is is quite important. Great, Shana. Thanks for that. Angela, your thoughts? I agree with what Shana said, but I'll add my my belief is people are just people. They come in all shapes and sizes, types, you know, skill sets. Just because you're um you know, a university professor doesn't mean that you can understand all the intricacies of managing diabetes. So I think, you know, they're just looking to us as diabetes educators for support, guidance to manage. Um, and they want to know what, you know, it's not just their diabetes, it's their life as well, because this is just part of their life. So my, my mantra is listen, talk to the person. Um, even if the family or carer responds, don't make assumptions, be realistic, don't judge, respect them. Respect that the person has life with good and bad times that include intellectual disabilities and diabetes, but also other medical conditions. And remember to offer the same to their families and carers. And my last point is, if you don't know, Google it. I know I should say this, <laughs> but I have found in my career as an educator that Google can sometimes be your enemy, but it can also be your friend, especially if you're looking for some tips and tricks to try and solve a problem. You know, I remember many years ago, that's how I found, found Jane Lehman's work because I was Googling something. So often it can be your friend. That's a nice way to end. And thank you to both of you, Shana and Angela, for you joining us today. And I'm taking time out of your, your busy work times, as I'm sure they are at the moment, especially. It's been really great to talk to you today. And also I'd like to thank those who will be listening to this podcast for taking the time to listen. Uh, to obtain CPD credit for this podcast, please go to the ABA Learning Management System at learning.adea.com.au and complete a feedback and evaluation. And Angela has mentioned the access to the program that they're running. So thank you to you both. And until next time, I'll say goodbye. Thank you.